When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Spread. Guys, Ryan Sprague here from Somewhere in the Skies, and welcome to a live stream tonight of the show. This will go out on the podcast feed tomorrow morning, Monday, but I'm excited to do this live tonight because we have two of the speakers and one of the organizers of the Midwest Conference on the Unknown coming to Cape Girardeau, Missouri, August 5th through the 7th. We're going to talk all about what's going to be going on at the conference, who's going to be speaking, this guy. Those guys are going to see in just a sec and a, a ton of other amazing speakers and uh, special events going on there in Missouri. But before we do that, we're going to talk some of the latest UFO news with these two people whom I respect greatly, who I am honored to call not just colleagues, but good friends as well. So let's not waste any more time. Let's bring them in right now. We have Micah Hanks and Michael Huntington. Welcome, guys, to Somewhere in the Skies. How's it going? Hello. Cheers, gentlemen. Before we start, I know it's hot there, Micah, where you are. I don't know how it's going in Missouri, Michael, but it's hot here too. So I've got a cold bevy right here. The Go Fast nice. Sightings beer. So right. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, I guess I'm gonna I'm just gonna have to follow suit, you know, uh and, and jump in here <laughs> on that. Um I, I haven't got a good oh actually no, there's totally a ufological uh tie-in here because okay, so Corona. Uh, some would say Roswell, others would say Corona, right? Uh, some would say Aztec. Good point. In, the, in the in the in incredible mythos of uh, crash wreckage retrievals uh, throughout parts of the southwestern <laughs> United States. So again, yeah. So there's at least in name a tie-in there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Michael, what are you drinking, man? Are you the responsible one tonight? Well, uh, I when I do drink, which is very rare. Uh, I, I will usually drink pretty much exclusively Guinness. Oh. Uh, I'm one of those weird persons. Uh, you know, I can have some wine or, you know, a shot or whatever every once in a while. But, uh, you know, I'm a family man. So, uh, 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 you know, with a lot of kids. So sleep is a big priority. So, uh, yeah, I have the uh, the Monster Triple Shot Energy Drink, uh, which is really bad for you. <laughs> yes, but in its own right, almost a cryptozoological oddity. So very fitting and yeah. apropos for the occasion. Very, yeah. very good point, my man. We're we're keeping it. We're all keeping it real tonight here on somewhere in the skies, um, guys. This is going to be super laid back. I'm so happy to have you guys here. I know I'm going to see you both in almost a week and a half now out in Missouri, but I thought it'd be a really cool opportunity um, to talk about what we're going to be doing in Missouri, um, talk about the speakers at the uh, Midwest 
conference on the unknown. Um, but before we do that, there's been so much going on in the UFO world lately. A lot of stuff being covered over at the debrief. Um, so let's let's hop in with some of the latest news, if you guys don't mind. I've got um little thing here. This is probably the biggest story to come out in the last couple weeks, Micah. This was written by you over at the debrief. The Pentagon reveals new name of its UAP investigative office. OMSOG A, whatever the heck that thing was, is no more. So, yeah, Micah, do you want to start, man? What's this new office? Uh, What's going to make it different from the other iterations we've heard of in the last year or so? And uh, give us your thoughts on this story, if you don't mind. Well, you know, really, this all goes back to last November. Uh, As most lawmakers in Washington were on their way home for the Thanksgiving holiday, we saw a surprise announcement. Uh, this was uh, quite a development, and that was the DOD announcing the establishment of the Airborne Object Identification Management and Synchronization Group, uh, otherwise uh, known affectionately as AIMSOG, even though that's not really a very accurate description of how the words would sound if you tried to read them out. But anyway, this is how uh, you know uh, the, the respected uh, Mr. Moultrie uh, depicted in the image there. Ronald Moultrie had described it during the recent congressional hearings. Um, this was a surprise because, of course, we had just seen at that time an amendment that had been um, introduced as a proposed amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2022 uh, by U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this called for the establishment of a UAP office that would definitely go beyond the scope of what seemed to be entailed as far as the AIMSOG. And so this led to a bit of a clash. Um People were asking if this passes as legislation, is this going to mean that there's going to be more than one UAP office? What exactly is going to happen with that? And so sure enough, uh, as the year went on, it comes to pass that the Gillibrand Amendment continued to receive additional support. I reached out to Gillibrand's office and received a statement from her spokesperson, Elizabeth Landau, who'd said that, you know, the AIMSOG, although we appreciate what the DOD is trying to do, in no way covers all the parameters of what we're looking at for the proposed anomaly. Uh, I think at the time they were trying to call it the ASRO, the anomaly, anomaly surveillance and resolution office, I think was the proposed name at that time. Uh, so many. Well, I know. And, and trying to keep up with all of them. It's just in, in, in near Herculean task. And I'm no Hercules, but the point is, is that uh, they had wanted to look at, you know, having, you know, field dispatch teams who could investigate uh, UAP, in, in the field, they had been looking at, you know, having a science team that would evaluate this. There was supposed to be an oversight panel. Uh, members of uh, Harvard astronomer uh, Avi Loeb's Galileo Project were supposed to constitute this panel, as well as members of an organization I'm actually a part of, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. Um, so it was, it was definitely um, hopeful that the Gillibrand Amendment and its version of the UAP office would take effect. And that amendment did end up being included in the final Senate package and passed into law early this year, signed into law by President Joe Biden. Uh, So that still left us wondering, well, but is there going to be the AIMSOG, which is just looking at aerial incursions over military controlled airspace? Or is there going to be this Gillibrand amendment? So I reached out to the Pentagon. Susan Goff got back with me and told me that, no, they didn't include the name for the office in the legislation uh, purposefully so that the AIMSOG, as it has been described, uh, can be the office, but it's going to fall within the purview of what Congress has directed. And then we heard during the congressional hearings earlier this year that uh, Mr. Moultrie had said that name's going to change. And this is that new name, the uh, All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which is supposed to do exactly what Congress has directed. It's going to cover all the things that were in the final version of the bill that went into law 
And this is going to be the DOD UAP investigative component. So that's kind of where we are right now, that little you know arrow on the map that points at where we are. Uh, and where it goes from here is anybody's guess. Right. And this is a really interesting part, I thought, from the statements, I believe, by Moultrie. Uh, this includes anomalous unidentified space, airborne, submerged, and transmedium objects. That's the part that really caught a lot of people's attention. So, Michael, would you mind touching on that a little bit, man? Do you think this is, as someone who strives for scientific uh, exploration of this topic and, um, you know, credibility, what do you think of this thing? Is this just another blue book in its millionth version now in 2021? Uh, excuse me, 22. Wow, I'm a year behind, guys. <laughs> um, what do you make of all this, man? Well, uh, it is certainly fascinating uh, uh, what it is going to be or or what it is now is sort of uh, open to interpretation. Uh, are we going to get some sort of bureaucratic uh, uh, blue book uh, that some perceived as uh, perceived as, you know, being delegitimate uh, somehow was a whitewash of the subject? Is this going to be, you know, a, a furtherance of that or is it going to be used for, you know, some sort of a broader disclosure uh, effort? Um we shall see. It, it, it certainly is a defense organization, though, and and it at least you know separate from say the UFO or the UAP uh, uh, subject proper, it is at least going to try to resolve uh, you know some of the uh, uh, the incursions uh, that are being reported or have been reported. Uh, there, at a minimum, is at least some sort of a drone problem or some sort of an incursion prog- uh, problem just on its base, whatever the ultimate answer is, uh, you know, there are incursions and it's of concern to military and intelligence. So it's going to be taken at, at least these uh, further cases, I think are going to be looked at through, you know, uh, uh, trying to make real determinations as to, likely explanations. Uh, I don't think you're going to see this governmental body, uh, you know, making any sort of disclosure like conclusion that declares something is extraterrestrial. I think what you will see is, as you have seen in the past, you know, we, we might get some interesting cases that are going to be open to different interpretations. And, uh, uh, we'll just have to see what comes out of that. I think there's going to be, uh, you know, there's not really a mandate to uh, give all this information out other than, you know, internally and politically. So um, how much we're going to get, it, it, it's debatable. They, the new office has opened up a Twitter space, so they're at least going to be engaging, you know, and maybe there's a recognition of, of UFO Twitter there, or maybe there's, you know, there's there's more connections there with the social media aspect uh, that uh, is intriguing, you know. Certainly, uh, are they going to give us reports? Are they going to get UFO Through researchers Twitter. involved? <laughs> yeah, because right. you know UFO Twitter. We're not going to keep our mouth shut. If they put a case on there, we're going to be into it. We're in your investigation. Sorry, you know, we're going to put our opinions right. out there. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, I just hope we get some interesting cases to look at and, and, and things that make us rise to that next level of, you know, what do we need scientifically here? How do, how do we continue to progress this? Because the goal is going to be, we're going to want some evidence. 
that's what we want ultimately we want the stories we want the accounts uh, accounts because we want to delve into those but you know we want some serious evidence uh instrumented evidence you know uh, scientific study field research evidence that we can sink, sink our our teeth into or you know foia files that we can sink our teeth into i think we're going to get a little bit of all that yeah, if I, I may just add so. really quickly to, to what Michael's Please. talking about. I mean, again, and this is one reason I just got to say, you know, if I can geek for a moment, why it's, why it's going to be so great up there in Cape Girardeau when we're all sharing space, you know, and, and talking about this, because it's evident. I mean, we've got so much going on right now, so many ideas everybody wants to share. Um, and frankly, coming out of the last two years with everybody having to kind of keep those conversations in the digital sphere it's going to be so wonderful to do that in human like space with one another in, in, in the oh, real world. Yes. <laughs> That's been so lacking from this dialogue. But, but as Michael pointed out, uh, we have a, a Twitter handle, right? For the AARO. And uh, what, what are we going to call that? Can we just call it the arrow, the RO arrow? I think works we'll right go with so, arrow. I like that. I think we'll go with arrow at least, you know, uh, for the purposes of our conversation here, uh, but it having a social media presence already, that didn't happen with aim SOG. Um, and it didn't even happen to my knowledge with the UAP task force. So, I mean, if anything, this does seem to show that the, uh, the DOD is hoping to have a, uh, public forward facing element, uh, whether or not that really actually entails the release of a lot of data, uh, because I would have to think that in the interest of national security, there are going to be distinctive limitations in terms of how much can be revealed. Uh, but on the other side, there is also a, a definitiveness, I guess, about this, right? Uh, there's something of a statement being made. The fact that the uh, predecessors didn't have their own Twitter handles, not just a hashtag, but again, a actual handle. And I followed it uh, as soon as I saw Moultrie tweeting about this. Uh, that seems to indicate that, well, there's a lasting component here. We plan to have this office at least for some time. Um, and I think actually some of the uh, the parameters in terms of length and then also what the office is intended to do are outlined in the legislation from earlier this year. Uh, but that definitely seems to say that the DOD uh, is expecting for this to be a presence for, you know, at least the next few years and enough so that they're already kind of, you know, staking their claim in social media. The other side of that, though, may also entail questions about, well, how forward facing will this be really is the whole idea of engaging, you know, with the, the UFO Twitter crowd uh, openly in Twitter, even though I doubt sincerely we're going to be seeing tweets at people or interactions, you know, from the Arrow account. Let's take a, you know, a hint from maybe past instances where government offices and things have had a Twitter presence like the CIA. Often they're actually making fun of topics like UFOs and and kind of you know making humorous references to the subject in their tweets. Uh, in a way that you would expect people to engage with one another online. So can we expect the same from the Arrow, the all-domain anomaly resolution office? Maybe so. That remains to be seen. But I think in itself that there is already that social media handle. That could be pretty significant. But one final point that Michael makes that's really, really important here. Again, you mentioned, Michael, there being a drone problem, and we can acknowledge at least that much. Let's not leave with the pres presumption that the UAP investigative elements within government right now are looking for dim aliens, you know, because if anything, what they have been tasked with doing is just analyzing any kind of defense risks, any kind of challenges to national security, whether and again, this is also something you pointed out, Ryan, that be in our airspace or if that actually is occurring at sea below or actually transitioning between the mediums of sea and air, as has been you know, proposed with these so-called transmedium uh, aircraft technologies, objects, whatever they may be. So we have to take into consideration that really 
our expectations, especially in the UFO community, having looked at the possibility of an exotic intelligence uh, and a technology uh, being what UAP represents and being the concept of this being something that is not human, it may not be exactly how the government looks at it. In fact, the majority of what they'll be looking at probably has much to do much more to do with down-to-earth threats and other challenges that emanate from here rather than from up there. Right, exactly. And we should say here, this is the the Twitter account for this new new office. And let's just uh, note on the right there, we see Lazar is trending. That could not be more perfect than for our live stream tonight, guys. <laughs> Lazar is trending again. Um, so make of that what you will. So is He-Man. I'm interested to learn more about that. That's got to be a Comic-Con thing. But um, yeah, yeah. Loving these trending things over here. Um, awesome, guys. Well, I'm glad I could get your thoughts on that because it was it was exciting news. Again, this is an evolution in the officialdom of this topic within the U.S. government, at least. We also just had congressional hearings here in the United States. Also, in Brazil, something I'm going to be uh, covering on the show in the very near future. Um, but I want to move on, guys, to another big story that recently um, that recently came to our attention, and that is this: we got some of the most historic images to ever grace our human eyeballs, and that came from the James Webb Telescope. I mean, look at these things. It's it's absolutely incredible. So I want to know first and foremost: Did either of you get to watch the uh, the press briefing that occurred the day before they released these images? It was pretty interesting, right? A little awkward, just like I would expect from NASA and Biden. But um, yeah, what did you guys think when these images first dropped? Uh, Michael, let's start with you, man, if you don't mind. Well. Uh- uh, I, I knew it was going to be a, an historic moment. You know, they they were. I think they lit the Empire State Building up in gold, right? Yep. Uh, yep. In honor of it, and uh, everybody was, you know, counting down uh, uh, the minutes to, you know, these pictures that we knew sort of what they were and and, and what areas were being uh, uh, looked at, and then, it, you know, I I, I had uh, you know my screen set up. And I was projecting it and I was watching it with my boys, you know, because I was like, hey, you're going to remember the time that we uh, uh, watched this, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And, of course, then we waited for like 45 minutes. They just left us waiting. <laughs> and this music was playing over and over and over. And, and, and you know, I'm getting on Twitter and everybody's just making fun of it. The memes are just rolling right at it. And then mm-hmm. uh, and then it started and then it uh you know, the pictures were kind of way back there, and then people were, I guess politicians were saying stuff, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, and then uh, and it just sort of ended, you know, and I was kind of disappointed, you know, and yeah, that's... yeah. Yeah, it, it was, was a kind of a um I, I was expecting the um Kirby enthusiasm music to come in at the end there. That would have been all too perfect. But um <laughs> hey, I think the most important part of this, and Michael, you're right, like this hopefully will be something your children will remember the day they saw the first images from James Webb. I mean, re- yeah. I remember Micah, I was with you digitally when um the rover first landed on Mars and my god, man, like I think all of us had tears in our eyes. It was such a 
incredible moment for space exploration. And, and so is this. I mean, we're unfolding the universe, as NASA has been saying, with these images. So, yeah, man, what did this mean to you personally? And uh, what do you make of these extraordinary images? Well, you know, I had friends outside of, <clears throat> I guess, you know, our area of interest, space astronomy, UAP, things like that, you know, uh, asking me, is this anything earth shattering? You know, is this life changing? Can I not watch this? I'm like, yeah, yeah. you know, go out there, uh, till the garden if you like, go take your wife to lunch, no problem. I mean, it's not going to change your life, maybe if you aren't as interested in space exploration uh, as someone like I am. But for me, this was one of the most significant um milestones i think that we've seen in in terms of not just modern space exploration uh but also of course in terms of what this uh what some have called the modern space race or you know what uh commentators like rod Pyle have called space 2.0 uh, what i really think is the the key takeaway about the james webb space telescope is that you know we have the most advanced science observatory uh that humans have ever put into space. And it's right now out there at LaGrange Point to collecting data. And sure, these images look great, but for a lot of people, they look a lot like the kinds of images that we're used to seeing. But I'll just point out, and although these are, and it should be you know, emphasized here, the images we're getting from Webb are combinations of images from several of the different uh, instruments on board the, the telescope, several different imaging systems and cameras. NASA forms composite imagery in that way, and that's what we're seeing here, which is what allows the, the rich depth of color, the incredible detail that you see. Uh, but what we also are able to see are things that previously, and this is where things get a little nuanced and where I personally get really excited. Uh, it's not just pretty colors. It's not just vivid detail and sharper resolution than what we've seen before. We're literally seeing things that were not visible before. Um, for instance, I think the nebula, if you look in the center of the image that you have right there, you've got a pair of nebula, um, one on the left that has a bluish color, one on the right that has a reddish color. Um, it, in previous attempts at imaging that nebula, we've known that there was a binary star at the heart of it. Uh, we weren't able to see that, but... Now we actually have very clear imagery representative of that because of the infrared wavelengths that are captured by the James Webb Space Telescope, which, unlike its predecessor, the Hubble, is able to actually discern data that, the, for instance, the human eye uh, would not be able to see, which would not be able to uh, you know, perceive. Uh, and that's important because it's much of the data that we're actually able to collect about distant galaxies and which we're doing with James Webb comes in that spectra or rather in, the, in those wavelengths. Now, of course, in terms of spectra, spectrographic information that's relayed to us back via uh, Webb, in other words, breaking apart the bandwidths of light and looking for key signatures in terms of minerals, elements, what have you. We're also getting a lot of data like that. Um, during the press conference the other day, it was stated that we also saw the transit of an exoplanet, and we were able to detect in the atmosphere of that from the spectrography the oxygen and the hydrogen in its atmosphere. Well, if you've got hydrogen and you've got oxygen, that means you've got a very good chance for there being water too. And this is helping us very quickly. I mean, just in the first few days, really, since it came fully operational and online, it's showing how Webb is going to be a formidable really a force to be reckoned with in terms of collecting data about our universe. But the final point I'll make also is that because of the wavelengths of the infrared light that it gathers, it's able to peer to the very edges of the known universe, and it's able to show us light that has taken 13.5 billion years to travel to where we are right now. And we can see what those galaxies look like 
essentially as they appeared in that formation stage that long ago. And so this is why you hear scientists saying, we're not just looking further out into the universe. We're looking back in time. We're seeing how our universe looked at a different, much earlier formative stage. And that's going to give us clues about not only the formation of galaxies, but also really about our universe, how it has grown, expanded, and changed over time. So, again, I can't emphasize enough that these aren't just pretty pictures. This, The data that's contained in these images is going to reshape in the years ahead how I think we're going to actually look at the universe. I love that, man. Yeah, it's not just about the pictures, guys. We read the articles, too, if there's anything <laughs> I've learned from uh, yeah. Playboy. Um, anyways, <laughs> moving on, <laughs> Lord Ludicker says, great discussion. Thanks, man. Thanks, everyone, for being here. I didn't get to give you guys all a shout-out at the beginning, but thank you, everyone. We've got the regulars here. Robert is here. We've got Awaiting Aliens. Um, yeah, just all all you guys. Thanks for the support. Thanks for watching. Um, one more news story I want to talk about before we get to the conference, the core of this conversation, um, is this. We have right now, this weekend going on, the Kecksburg UFO Festival. And no, the event did not happen in July. It, it actually happened in December. But look, just like many around the country, including in Missouri, Live conferences have been suffering greatly for the past few years with this obvious uh, dilemma we've been in for for years now at this point. And, um, yeah, we're just now starting to get live conferences up and going again, which is amazing. Micah, I know you've hit up a bunch already this year, Um, but this is a big one, Kecksburg. So I've actually never, guys, covered this incident on my show. Um, so I would love if either of you, whoever wants to take it first, your thoughts on the Kecksburg case of uh, it was 1965, correct? I'm I'm failing at ufology right now. Yep, December 9th, 1965. Um, what do you guys make of this case? Where does this case lay in UFO history for you guys personally? Michael, why don't we start with you? Uh, well, uh those of us who have uh, followed the lore uh, for a number of years know that there are several uh, UFO crash uh, uh, cases, accounts, uh, folklore, uh, whatnot, uh, that have captured our imaginations as, as well as the popular culture. And, uh, of course, right up there at the top is, is Roswell. Uh, uh, as one of the big ones, uh, Shag Harbors maybe up there in the, in the top few. Uh, Aztec is possibly even up there, but uh, certainly also occupying, you know, one of these top spots would be the uh, the Kecksburg, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Acorn crash that took place. Uh, yeah, December ninth, nineteen sixty five. Uh, 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 near a small town in uh, Pennsylvania called uh, Kecksburg. Uh, folks there saw a fireball come out of the sky. And it, it was a fireball that was seen by uh, people in other states. So, you know, there was some sort of uh, legitimate phenomena or something. Uh, it, it came down uh, uh, during that time period. Uh, even skeptics will, will, will tell you that, it, you know, a satellite or a meteor or something came down, th- down that night and uh, uh, quite possibly landed in, in a little, you know, ravine area uh, near Kecksburg. And uh, uh, from there, you know, like, like a lot of these stories, uh, 
you know, the, the town was sort of overrun by the military. People were sworn to secrecy. Uh, you know, the government came in, whisked things out and, you know, made threats and, you know, all sort of strange shenanigans and, uh, uh, Reports from accounts from different people of the years that, you know, saw different things, you know, were close to the objects that came down and it wasn't a meteorite. It was some kind of a, you know, a metal device or capsule with uh, exotic writing on it. And, uh, you know, that that goes to the question of was it man-made? Was it foreign? Uh, was it uh, uh, government uh alien or you know some other sort of uh, strange hoax type thing or or a military uh, thing gone wrong um and uh, you know these stories circulated and uh, uh people like Stan Gordon investigated him uh, a great researcher from that area been on it ever since you know I've, I've been lucky to talk to him and uh it, it's a fascinating story that is uh captured the imagination over subsequent uh, generations now, you know, through TV shows and, you know, like Unsolved Mysteries and and uh, sightings, you know, all these different uh, uh, generational uh, retellings of the story uh, uh, make us wonder what happened. And we can speculate. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people lean towards, you know, a possible satellite, I think, in, in most interpretations now. But, uh, ultimately, it's it, it's a UFO crash story, and uh, it's uh, and the town celebrates it as a lot of towns do celebrate break their folklore, and they have a uh, a festival there, which uh, you know benefits the community, which uh, is a good thing. Absolutely, and you know one of the most I think uh, interesting aspects to this entire case is also uh, Leslie Kane, the investigative journalist, was involved with a lawsuit to try to get the files on this thing from, I believe it was NASA. Maybe Micah, you can uh, expound on this. Cause I don't know a lot about this case. Again, um, this is not one that I have really dug into, but um, where does this case lay in terms of UFO history controversy? Um, do you, what do you think this, this was um, this entire Kecksburg incident and why is it worth <clears throat> celebrating with this festival in your opinion? Well, you know, again, and Michael really already gave us a great overview of, of the main points. Uh, I think that the three primary uh, theories about what this object, if there was an object, was, and I think that there's pretty good evidence that there was one. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but the three primary theories are uh, either a fireball, i.e. a meteor, uh, either the reentry re of a Soviet satellite, uh, or, of course, something more exotic uh, that, again, would fall within the kind of UFO crash retrieval mythos, which... To use the word myth, my father's always said this, is not to assert that, well, it didn't happen or it doesn't exist, but myths are often the byproduct of, an, of a real event that people experience, they observe, they tell it, they retell it, next generation comes along and retells it, and a story, you know, a mythos is woven around real events that may not necessarily be entirely what had actually happened. What we do know is, of course, that back in December 1965, it was reported that something crashed as it passed over Ontario, comes down over the Midwest, crashes uh, near Kecksburg. But it's reported subsequently in newspapers that authorities weren't able to actually recover anything, which is curious because in advance of the 40th anniversary of the event, NASA actually came forward and said, we did recover some bits of metallic debris 
And those do appear to be uh, consistent with the reentry of a Soviet satellite. That's Mm. probably what happened. But we don't have any documentation because we lost it. That's where Leslie Kane came into this case. Leslie is part of, I think, of a sci-fi television program a few years back, um, had become involved in trying to appeal through the FOIA process to get NASA to reveal those documents. And again, they maintained we just don't have the documents. There isn't a cover-up. We aren't trying to hide anything. We don't have those documents. Now, I mean, a lot of people would say that's very convenient that a significant case like this, um, they happen to have lost all their information, something to the tune of like two boxes of documents that they supposedly had about this case. But keep in mind, I mean, I couldn't imagine anything probably more significant in the 20th century than the Apollo moon landing. And the original tapes from that moon landing also were misplaced or lost, or if anything, actually, is was standard practice back in those days. They reused the tapes. Now, you wouldn't imagine that makes much sense, something as historic as putting human beings on the moon, and you tape over the originals. But that's actually apparently what NASA did. And they point to that as uh, evidence in support of their loss of these documents, as treacherous and sad as it sounds. They're like, hey, we're human, and that does happen. It's happened in the past, and that's no doubt what happened here. But I do think it's interesting that uh, initial reports said there was nothing found, and then later NASA, despite not having any longer the documentation that they said supported this, claiming that they had actually had metallic debris that was consistent with the reentry of a Soviet satellite. I would say that that's probably the most likely explanation. But uh, one final point I'll also make about this is that, you know, again, when we talk about this idea of a crash retrieval mythos, or what I would call the flying saucer crash retrieval syndrome, uh, there's a long history of this in the United States. If we go back to around 1886 in Nebraska, there was a newspaper item about a mystery, a metallic meteor of mysterious origins, which crashed into a field and it scattered debris. And a group of cowboys observed this. And when they go back up there a few days later to actually try and recover some of this wreckage from this mystery meteor, as it was termed in the newspaper article, a heavy rain came through. And as the water from the rain struck the object, it melted it like salt. That was... Um, an interesting story. It was also later revealed in the 1920s to have been a hoax. Uh, we also had in 1897, uh, the famous incident down there at Aurora, Texas. I've been down there to that uh, Masonic cemetery there in the little town of Aurora. Um, and there is a historical uh, sign right there, a state historical sign that says, you know, this is the location where an alleged airship crash in 1897 occurred. And the occupant, the pilot was supposedly buried in this little Aurora cemetery. In likelihood, that probably also was a newspaper hoax, but we should keep in mind that between 1896 and 1897, that whole thing about airships began with sightings over California of lights in the sky, and there were a number of officials who were you know, cited in these newspaper articles as having been witnesses to these events. Now, again, it's, it's difficult, and we get into shaky territory if we start saying, well, one newspaper article was probably a hoax, but all these other ones were probably true. Really, it's going to be difficult for us in hindsight to know But if I had to speculate, I would actually say that there probably were aerial phenomena of some kind that were being observed and that there were witnesses to this and that this gave rise to a lot of interest in the idea of prospective airship technologies that the military or maybe a private inventor was building. The long story short is that this kind of gave rise to these discussions of airships. And then, of course, this crash story, which we'd already seen sometime before in Nebraska. Another iteration occurs there in 1897 at Aurora, Texas. And then we continue to hear stories about 
crash wreckages and retrievals and things uh, throughout, of course, 1947 with Roswell. That had been reported in the Roswell Daily Record. Frank Scully in his book Behind the Flying Saucers is talking about an alleged crash at Aztec, New Mexico. Leonard Stringfield is collecting all kinds of stories about crashes that occurred in the southwest throughout the 1970s. And that in advance of the late, great Stanton Friedman talking with Jesse Marcel uh, and then eventually the publication of a book, partly uh, as a result of some of the field investigations by Stan, who had been the first uh, in the field civilian investigator, along with William Moore, Moore having gone and co-authored with Charles Burlitz that book, The Roswell Incident. But that book even was fairly dismissive, although it mentioned alien bodies, it was dismissive of a lot of those claims. But again, as that mythos continued to build, we had other writers, Kevin Randall, Don Schmidt, and others get involved. We start hearing the stories about alien bodies. You know, we have the story of the mortician meeting with the woman who had worked at Army, a Roswell Army Airfield, and who had, uh, you know, claimed that she had seen bodies. Um, it's it's a complex web of stories that, again, no doubt has some truth in 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 you know in the historical side of it. But that truth has probably been built onto so much over the years. That's very evident with Roswell. I think that's probably very likely with Kecksburg, too. But, Ryan, final point as to where it really sits in the history of UFOs in America, as you asked, it is that. I think it is, and this is kind of speaking to what Michael was talking about, this kind of, you know, it's, it's a component within this longstanding American tradition of the recovery of crashed exotic material of unknown origin. And, again, that's a very American tradition. There's probably some truth to it somewhere. And we even saw recent legislation passed uh, by the House Intelligence Committee for the proposed NDAA for next year saying, hey, you know, going all the way back to the beginning of fiscal year 1947, we want data on anything that's been collected. We know what they're referencing, whether we actually yeah. find out we had it or not it remains to be seen, but it's a very American tradition of you know, finding things that have crashed and then hearing about cover-ups. <laughs> yep. We've got many traditions here in America. I am happy to make UFO crash retrievals. One of them that will make me a proud American for sure. <laughs> if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey guys, Ryan here. The Somewhere in the Skies podcast is a labor of love every week. And with that comes many different costs to keep the show running. That's where our Patreon campaign comes in. You give what you think the show is worth. There's different rewards available all the time, including shoutouts on the show, early editions of main episodes, bonus episodes and content, and very soon, monthly patron hangouts, where we sit back and chat all things UFOs. So I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support and keep looking up. Well, speaking of crashes, let's move on, guys, to the reason we're really here tonight, the reason the three of us are going to be in Missouri. And that is a very uh, famous crash for many Missourians um, that Michael's going to be talking about at the Midwest Conference on the Unknown. So, Michael, first, before we even get to the event, um, how did it come to be? This is going to be the inaugural festival that i know you're uh one of the co-organizers on um give us the skivvy man how did this come to be and um tell us a little about what the event is going to entail if you don't mind uh well uh i was approached uh by a friend of mine that i've uh, known for 30 years uh ken murphy he's a local uh you know uh conference organizer he's in that he's in the events business and uh he had been uh, interested in bringing uh, uh, the sort of stuff that I'm interested in, you know, paranormal UFOs, ghosts, Bigfoot, anything anomalous and, uh, you know, anything that, you know, sort of uh, pushes us in, diff- in different directions of thinking when it comes to, uh, you know, what constitutes, you know, science, methodology, you know, paradigm shifts, all that sort of stuff. Uh, uh, we knew that we wanted, it, you know, it, we, we looked and saw that, you know, the Midwest is a good place. Uh, there's not a lot of conferences in this area. Uh, people are sort of interested in this subject uh, 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 from recent years, you know, uh, you know, within the society, within the culture, these, these topics have taken on and uh, taken off in uh, all different kinds of media. And, uh, uh, you know, so I, I, I began reaching out and uh, uh, contacted some of the uh, best Speakers, I think, in different areas uh, that uh, you know can provide a you know a really good conversation, a really good uh, 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 you know traditional type conference that they used to have. You know where it was uh, you know people interacting. You know it's not just everybody's up on a stage and then everybody's over here. You know I think we're going to have just as many uh, you know uh, talented researchers and people within these uh, different fields of inquiry within the audience just, just as well as there will be on stage. But, you know, we, uh, we reached out to, you know, you guys and, uh, you know, some people within, uh, you know, the, the cryptozoological communities and, uh, you know, people that are, that, that are really bringing their A game and uh, uh, trying to deal with these, uh, these questions in a critically thinking manner, uh, you know, so that we can try to work towards strategies to, 
to try to, you know, get some real answers, uh, you know, for consideration. And, uh, uh, I think we got a good little group here and, I, and I, we're, we're looking to do more conferences in the future and, and to grow these conferences and, you know, to add workshops and, and, uh, you know, maybe even a, 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 you know, a visiting lecture stage, you know, for people that want to present papers, you know, uh, things like that. I think, uh, you know, to, to kind of get us back towards, you know, uh, some good reform minded, uh, 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 events that, you know, where, where we discuss, you know, trying to improve these research fields and deal with these questions. And, uh, uh, I think that's what we're looking to do. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that you guys are, are participating. I think, uh, you're some of the brightest uh, people in this field. Um, you know, you're open to the mystery, but you're also, you know, you, you have those questions in your hands. And, uh, you know, you don't want to be fooled either. You don't want to be part of a belief system. We want to all try to, you know, figure out great ways, you know, strategic ways to uh, uh, try to get the information. You know, ultimately, I think scientific information, uh, you know, is what we're going to have to to try to promote. And uh, I'm looking forward to some great com- conversations. And I think it's really going to be fun and and, you know, there's a social component to these subcultures, too, you know, and uh, we've sort of been pulled out of that you know, these past few years. And, and due to the Internet, you know, it's kind of just so easy to war, you know, it, 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 it'd be great if we can get back to community by actually communing and uh, sharing ideas and 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 learning how to elevate the discourse and uh, have collegial uh, conversations uh, and still have differences of opinion. That's how we're going to achieve some of these answers. And, uh, you know, I think this is a good opportunity. Right. Well, and you bring up, you bring up a couple of good points there, Michael, and this is going to be my first conference in person conference since the pandemic. So I'm like, I'm, I've forgotten how to interact with human beings in person. Like, <laughs> so this is going to be a very interesting social experiment for me. But I think the other big exciting thing and the reason I signed on, um, I don't want to speak for Micah, but um, I think it's because of the variety of speakers. You know, Micah and I are so used to going to UFO conferences where it's just, you know, UFO researchers um, bouncing the echo chamber back and forth, back and forth. But a conference like this, I can go as a speaker, but I'm also an attendee learning something about other topics. And that's what I love about events like this, where you have a cryptozoologist, you have, um, you know, a paranormal investigator, you have a ufologist, because that's what it's all about. Like, we're all one big weird ass family. Let's be completely honest. And while we want to kind of narrow in on answers to the UFO phenomenon, to the paranormal phenomena, um, I think this is a wonderful opportunity for everyone to get together and see, hey, Maybe some of these topics are connected to one another, or maybe they are not. Um, that's really up to the the person, the researcher, and those attending and what they think. But um, I, I'd love to get, Micah, your thoughts on uh, when Michael came to you with this event. Yeah, what drew you to this? I know for me, I was like, dude, you don't have to ask me twice. I'm there. This sounds amazing. Um, so what was it like for you? Well, there is that collegial side of it, you know, that, I mean, I like all the people, Michael and yourself and, uh, you know, some, some of the excellent speakers that are on the tap for this, of course, you know, Josh Cutchin, uh, a very uh, 
very interesting guy in terms of being someone who has, you know, kind of continued, in my view, the work of uh, some of the luminaries like Jacques Vallée uh, and others and uh, trying to look at, look a little more deeply in an almost sort of folkloristic and anthropological sense at, well, could UAP actually be representative of a broader, deeper, and longer-lasting phenomenon and one that we as humans have experienced throughout time. Uh, his work really, again, in that Magonian sense of things, citing a valet's passport to Magonia, really carries on in that tradition. Um, but again, all the speakers, uh, you know, I'm, I'm naturally partial to guys like uh, Josh or to Ken Gerhard, you know, who has been out there just, you know, really working tirelessly uh, in the field of cryptozoology, but more importantly, in a topic that I'm really, really passionate about, uh, it, of course, has to do with the search for relic hominoids, uh, more popularly known as Sasquatch or Bigfoot. But I mean, he's one of these researchers who, if you watch Ken's lectures, he's talking about how can we apply science to the study of this. Many people would say, well, here's how you apply science to it. You go and you get a degree in folklore. And you, But again, there's a tremendous body of data that is strongly suggestive. I was doing an interview earlier today about this very topic. The, a body of data and a longstanding uh, American tradition that involves sightings of what appears to be a primate, a human-like primate, but one that is you know, not unlike other higher primates extant today and certainly not unlike things that are recognized in the paleoanthropological record, but which there seem to be very good, you know, and, and I think in many instances valid uh, eyewitness observations of, even in recent years. And it's always been a bit paradoxical to me that although we, we don't really know exactly what UAP might be, I mean, we have ideas, but we still haven't, come close to resolving that question. Even in the ODNI report last June, we had that other category, which a lot of folks kind of look at as a throwaway category. I look at that as the most important category because it's describing objects that exhibit what appear to be signature management. That is, they appear to possess the ability to reduce their visibility through electromagnetic means, through the ability of, of, of decreasing electronically their detection capabilities. Radar jamming is something that's being observed. Hyperacceleration of objects, which again bespeaks a technology. All these things observed, and hence we have to say, uh, we're not sure what this is. Let's give it a really ambiguous and unimpressive category title, Other. If they'd called them possible ET or something like that, yeah, it would have gotten a lot of attention, <laughs> raised a lot of eyebrows. But the point I'm making here is that, again, that little that seemingly innocuous other category really points to a big mystery. And there are a lot of implications, a lot of potentials. And, yes, one that has been on the table for years is, we might be looking at extraterrestrials. We don't know. That could be. And yet people these days in the modern UAP debate are pretty quick to warm up to that idea, despite the fact that we haven't got a lot of scientific data collected by astronomers and physicists that is indicative of the existence of intelligent species out there who are watching Earth. And it's not to say that they aren't out there. It's not to say by any means that UAP, some UAP might not represent that. But again, the fact that we don't have any data and yet people are so quick to warm up to that idea. And yet when we sit down for a Guinness, you know, in Cape Girardeau, and <laughs> ask, what do you do for a living, Mr. Hanks? And I say, well, I study mysteries. If I start telling them about UAP, they're like, fascinating. Do you think we're being visited? Tell me more. You tell them, hey, but you know what? I'm interested in the idea that there is a bipedal, upright, mysterious primate that may inhabit remote regions of North America. They laugh. And I'm like, Again, guys, if you look at the fossil record, we have good examples of things like that that have existed here on Earth, and there's nothing about that physically or biologically that couldn't potentially exist, and yet people are so quick to dismiss it. So, again, I think it's very important to kind of check ourselves in terms of 
you know, how we and how our biases uh, tend to correct our interpretations of phenomena. When you come to a conference like this, I hope that people are going to say, okay, I came for the UFOs. I stayed to hear about Sasquatch. I stayed to hear about other interesting topics, uh, things that I might not have been as prone toward interest in or belief in, but now I'm getting a different perspective and going, okay, there was a lot more to that than I probably expected. I'm, I'm sure, in fact, that when people come to this event, they're going to come away with those same kinds of perspectives. Absolutely. And, you know, the mantra comes to mind, check yourself before you wreck yourself. And I think that's <laughs> all that you we really need to look at. I think these conferences really put me back in my shoes and make me re-examine everything I've grown comfortable with when it comes to the UFO topic. When I go to a conference like this and I hear something that you bring forward or uh, Michael or any of the speakers, it makes me look at what I've been doing in a whole new light and see, oh, how can I now, you know, infuse that into my ufology? You know, a lot of people know me as the experiencer guy. I interview experiencers. I write about them, the aftermath of their their events. And that's great. And that's like something I continue to do and pursue. But then there's so many different facets to the UFO mystery and the UFO topic that I often push to the side to focus on just the human aspect of it. So that's, again, that's why I love these sorts of things. It gets me out of my comfort zone and it makes me re-examine this topic that I've dedicated half my life to in a whole new light. Um, so I would have to agree with you. Um, it challenges us, not just as audience members, but as researchers and speakers as well. You know, I might go in wanting to say one thing, but that could change in an instant with something I hear at an event like this. It completely both ruin my presentation, but also make it better. So, yeah, I, I would have to agree with you on so many levels. Um, so I guess let's talk about what you guys are going to be speaking on. Michael, you're not just helping to organize this. You will be a speaker at the event. So tell us a little about your local connection to this and um, what you're going to be talking about at the Midwest Conference of the Unknown. Well, I, I you know, I'm the resident uh, uh, weirdo. And uh, <laughs> as, as a UFO researcher and, uh, uh, you know, cryptid explorer and uh, ghost hunter, you know, I, I, I travel around. Uh, documenting uh, strange locations, uh, and I do it from my town of, of Cape Girardeau, which uh, has its own fantastic uh, UFO history. Um, yeah, I yeah I was they approached me, and uh, I I definitely you know said that I wanted to do uh, some stuff on local history because I, I think uh, this town has and, and Southeast Missouri uh, has some interesting stuff that. Uh, uh, that occurred here, you know, Dr. Harley Rutledge uh, r ran project identification out of Southeast Missouri state. Uh, uh, we had uh, the, uh, the web uh, UFO injury case. And of course, you know, the Cape Girardeau UFO crash story. So we got some uh, interesting connections and, in, and, and lore here. And uh, uh, I hope to uh, be able to, uh, uh, educate some people uh, that are interested in that. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. Awesome. Micah, what are you going to be talking about, man? I know you and I, whenever we go to these events, we're always the UFO guys. So people kind of know what to expect from us. But this is a um, a talk that I don't believe you've given 
that often um, in terms of what it will entail. So, yeah, tell us a little about what you'll be you'll be speaking on and give us the tease, man. Well, I'm actually notorious for almost never giving the same lecture over and over again. A lot of right. speakers kind of have two or three lectures and they go and give them. I try to tailor whatever talk Sorry. I'm going to give. Yeah, I try to tailor my my talks for the event that I'm going to be at. And, you know, with this one, when Michael first came to me and, and said, you know, what have you got in mind? I've been going back and spending a lot of time reading um, some of the work of John Keel from back in the 1960s. And you got to keep in mind, in 1966, there was a UFO wave going on in the United States. We had the famous Michigan swamp gas incident that, you know, Hynek stepped in his, in his uh, well, his soup, I guess, on that one. And, uh, and, and even got some pushback from then-Congressman Gerald Ford. Michiganians aren't seeing swamp gas, Dr. Hynek, you know. And that was infamous as far as UFO history. But uh, I think that for John Keel... He's looking at this and going, ah, I'm going to start studying this to a systematic analysis, and in two years we'll have it all figured out. Well, two years later, he came to the novel conclusion that everything NICAP and all the, you know, the UFO extraterrestrial cultists believe, that ain't what we're dealing with. And although I wasn't necessarily apt to conclude the same as Keel did, I've really always appreciated his approach. Let's think outside the box and start all over again and look at this and say, what do we really know about this phenomenon? Um, And indeed, in the early days of this phenomenon, going all the way back to the first uh, Air Force study, Project Sign, there was a now famous but missing document. It was purportedly destroyed, the estimate of the situation. It -hmm. made some very interesting uh, assertions about what some of these technologies might be. And that was talked about, of course, in the book that was written by the first head of Project Blue Book, Edward Ruppel. So in terms of that tradition of what are we doing, what are we looking at, uh, what do we know? epistemologically, you know, what does this topic represent to us? Uh, the, the title of my presentation is Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, Past, Present, and Future Potentials. And we're going to be looking at, again, the, the now seemingly discarded history of this subject that the current members of investigative uh, groups in government that are looking at this, according to my sources, apparently have very little to any interest in. We're going to look at that very necessary history, and it's not going to start in 1947 or 1944 or even 1943. We're going to go back much further and look at um, a brief perspective on the history of this topic and then understand in the present moment what that means and also what the future potentials from study of UAP might mean for us in the years ahead. So it's going to be a very comprehensive talk and one that I certainly hope is going to give us a very – um, well-rounded perspective on what unidentified aerial phenomena or these transmedium phenomena that our uh, DOD and others are currently studying, what they might represent and what that means for us all from here going forward. I love that. I love that, man. And, you know, I think one of my most popular episodes still of Someone in the Skies was an episode you did with me where we went back to the, you know, antiquity time in terms of flying shields and the way we, you know, our ancestors interpreted these things in the skies and what that might say where we are in ufology now. And I think that's such a um, something that we don't hold as much value as we used to is the history of this topic uh, pre-Roswell. And I think one of the most exciting things from that conversation we had was this idea that we can look at cases from antiquity or, you know, uh, up through the 1800s with the, the airships and whatnot. And we can actually go look at like, 
what the weather was like on the day that this event took place and what was going on in that geographical area at the time. And now look at a case back then with fresh eyes and be like, oh, there was a weather uh, phenomenon that occurred in this place at that time that could explain what this UFO was. And that blew my mind when you brought that up. I'm like, we are retroactively solving UFO cases. So I love this idea of like the past, present, future of ufology and how it can in tandem work. Uh, all those different timelines work together to find answers to this, if that makes any sense. Or am I way off the mark on that? No, you're, you're spot on. Again, you know what, what Ryan's talking about for those who haven't watched this episode, and I highly encourage people to go back and check it out. Uh, we kind of broke down in real time an example of looking at a, at a historic case. Uh, this one had actually been, I believe, a light that was seen hovering over Jerusalem for several days. Um, and what we were able to do is we were able to look at possible explanations with the help of modern stellarium, you know, star uh, charting technologies. Because again, in terms of the way that the Earth orients itself with the star field around us, uh, there are absolutely, I mean, down to, to, to the minutiae, there are consistencies that can be tracked throughout time. And not only can we predict when we have, you know, future alignments that, you know, that, that are going to occur of planets and things along these lines, we can also look back and we can see past events and we have a lot of knowledge based on the stellar debris that's left after you know for instance a star explodes in the in the remnants of these supernovae we have a good idea of when there are actually ways that astronomers based on the rate of the 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 movement of this star stuff as Sagan would have called it through space that we can measure that and we can gauge when the actual event would have occurred and therefore we can trace back in time when there would have been a bright light that would have been seen in the sky for about a week or two and then we can look at data about historical observations of, again, what we might call UAP and say, okay, cool. As we expected, people said that they saw a bright light in the sky during this period. Now, I'm by no means the only person or the best, in fact, uh, in terms of researchers who are doing this. There are a lot of very, very skilled uh, UFO historical researchers who are using this kind of information, historical data, uh, you know, Stellarium software and other things like this to help us unravel clues about past examples of UAP. What's interesting is when you get something you can't identify, that you can't explain, and then we have to look at it and say, okay, you know, descriptions of a silver disc resembling a shield passing over a Roman army might, at very least, qualify for a UAP sighting, not unlike the kinds of things that, for instance, members of Carrier Strike Group 11 encountered out there off the California coast in 2004. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think is most important, is trying to look at do we have data that suggests there's been a longer presence of this phenomenon? And again, I'm so glad that folks like Michael and others are also going to be talking about the history of this subject because, you know, again, everything that's been indicated to me about the current uh, or the forthcoming efforts of the uh, arrow, as we decided to call it, uh, they, they're not very interested in looking at historical information. They want to look at what we can collect now with the best material and the best technology and go forward. And I respect that, but I also think that one day historians are going to look back and say, this phenomenon didn't begin in 2019 or 2017. It's been with us for a long time. And we're going to have to understand that history also to see the bigger picture about that. So Michael's lecture, my own lecture, are going to be looking at the history. Uh, I think we're all going to be trying to put together the, the, the temporal, I'm not my microphone here, the temporal components of this phenomenon throughout time and what it means to us now, Brian, that human perspective on the phenomenon that's so integral to understanding UAP. 
Thank you, Michael. Well, and you know, I can't pretend that, you know, witness testimony is anything to bring in front of, uh, you know, uh, a court of law. But you look, people have been sent to prison, put on murder, uh, you know, death row because of witness testimony. So there mm-hmm. is something to be said about uh, where my sort of ufology lay in all this. But um, I can't pretend that it's the be all end all. I think data in history is an extremely important part to this entire mystery. Um, I will just say right now, I am going to be giving a lecture um, that I have given before, but in a entirely new light. Um, the beauty of what I do is um, I am constantly hearing new stories and I am constantly investigating new cases. And that's where the human perspective comes in. So I now have new people that I can bring forward that have never talked about their incidents before, including uh, a one of the pilots who encountered one of these things off of one of those carriers will be a part of one of my uh, one of my lectures uh, out in Missouri and talking for the very first time about her very personal thoughts and theories on what she experienced over the coast of California there. So I'm really excited about that. It's, um, it's, it's unlike anything I've done before in terms of the individuals I'm going to be presenting there in their stories. So I'm excited about that. But Michael, I want to ask you, man, we don't just have ufology going on at this thing. Like we said earlier, what are some of the other uh, talks that we're going to be hearing? And um, maybe a few of the most interesting that you find interesting. I know they're all your babies, this is what your event that you're co-organizing. But um, yeah, would you mind touching on maybe a few of the other speakers and what they'll be talking about? Well, uh, as you guys have already uh, uh, alluded to, you know, these uh, these anomalies, uh, so to speak, are are connected in the fact that they are mysteries uh, that are challenges to science. And, you know, questions are brought up as to, you know, what constitutes sufficient evidence uh, you know what uh, constitutes constitutes a methodological program of investigation. Uh, how can we find out the truth behind you know some of these anomalous you know very divergent anomalous uh, circumstances? And uh, all these questions will be uh, erased and asked, and we will have people in in uh, in different fields to you know try to come up with uh, you know some ideas and some answers. We got. Uh, uh, people from the ufological uh, research uh, field. We got cryptozoologists. We got uh, ghost hunters. Uh, we have keel experts. We have, uh, you know, uh, uh, people from the Mothman Museum. You know, we have sort of a, a divergence of uh, uh, of people. Um, it's really sort of uh, uh, amazing to see. Uh, we got uh, Zach Bales, who is a a, a, a a writer, uh, a teacher, and uh, he, he investigates uh, all different kinds of strange things. We got Steve Ward, uh, who is a, a, a Keel uh, researcher. He does tours of uh, Mothman uh, area, and also he works at the uh, Mothman Museum in Point Pleasant. So uh, jealous. Yeah. <laughs> it's like my the- dream job. Yeah, great, great gig there. Uh, Margie Kay, who was uh, a, a director of uh, Missouri MUFON for many years, a, a, you know, a, a longtime researcher here. Uh, she also has a uh, media network that 
has a lot of uh, people within all of these different paranormal communities. Uh, Courtney Block is uh, the liminal librarian, or, or I, I think is what she uh, uh, she is called. But she uh, she's written several ghost hunting books. Uh, she's a, a librarian from Indiana, so uh, she's uh, uh, you know we're trying to bring some of the younger people, people with uh, new ideas, and uh, uh, people that you know do have a, a good uh, basis expertise in the fields that they're coming from. Joshua. Uh, Kutchin is going to bring some of the esoteric, uh, you know, discussion into the mix. Uh, be prepared to talk about fairies, you know, and folklore and and uh, uh, all manner of uh, high strangeness with uh, with uh, any of these speakers, because we're going to hear some uh, some uh, things about Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and Mothman and Valiant Thor and uh, uh, conspiracies and also, you know, uh, uh, UAPs and science and the limits of science and uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna uh, have fun with this and we're gonna have great conversations on the stage and in the panels and uh, in, in the parties afterwards so it should be great. Absolutely, um, and I know, and I already know some of the people that will be in attendance. And like you said, uh, they have just as much right to be up on that stage <laughs> as Micah and I do. So I'm excited to have conversations with a lot of the attendees at the, um, the after parties and uh, tell us a little about this after party that's taking place at <laughs> a haunted location. Is that correct? Cause this will not be the first haunted location. Micah Hanks and I have been in together after a couple of drinks, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah. I think I heard about that. Uh, no, uh, uh, yeah, we're going to have some, uh, some VIP stuff, you know, some, some, uh, receptions and, uh, other extra activities. I think we'll probably have some ghost tours or, you know, maybe a UFO tour, a, a, a few artistic things going on. I think there might be a performance of war of the worlds, the radio show uh, by a local group nice. of uh, artists. I think that'll be fun and interesting, uh, but we will also have, you know, a, 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 a reception to celebrate, you know, our inaugural event at uh, the local Victorian haunted house that was featured on uh, Ghost Hunters uh, a few seasons ago. We will be uh, 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 having some great social time there, and 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 can't have a better place uh, uh, to do that, you know, in a phenomenological location. And uh, hopefully, we'll experience some stuff uh, and uh, have some great conversations. Absolutely. And just because you're a specter does not mean that you uh, are getting in for free. <laughs> so if you want ghosts and humans alike, uh, we have some VIP discount codes for you right there for the event. Um, Hank's VIP, Sprague VIP, Huntington VIP. Um, just put that in at checkout and you will get a significant discount off the ticket price to this event. Um, I can't wait. I don't do episodes where I just, you know, kind of market an event. And again, it's not just because us three are speaking at this. I do truly believe this is going to become uh, a big thing in the Midwest. And I have all the faith in the world in what you and Ken are putting together here. And I know it's going to grow into something truly special. And um, it's only just beginning, man. So I'm excited. I can't wait to meet you in person finally. It's going to be so, so cool. Um, so, yeah, give us the information about when this is and uh, where people can find out more about it, Michael, if you don't mind. 
Well, uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri is, uh, you know, just uh, maybe an hour and a half or two hours south of uh, St. Louis. We're right on the Mississippi River. We are a river town. Uh, and we have a great nightlife down there uh, that celebrates that. Uh, we are in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. The, uh, uh, the event is uh, at the Drury Plaza Conference Center uh, in, in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, uh, August 5th through 7th. Uh, we're doing three days, uh, 10 speakers, panel, and then, uh, you know, all, a vendor's room, and then all sorts of, you know, fun stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, this will be our first time out. Uh, uh, some of these people have, you know, worked on other conferences and stuff. So I think logistically it's all going to be great. And uh, uh, we anticipate uh, in future years adding things like film festivals and, and workshops and, uh, you know, uh, paper presentations and all that sort of stuff. So we, we hope to uh, use this as a, as a way to improve these uh, communities and to have fun and to, you know, get back to socializing and, and, and having community. So. Absolutely, man. I think again, these conferences are kind of an excuse for us all to just get together in a community (laughs) that we love, that we hate, but at the end of the day, we all have these burning curiosities in common, and I can't think of a better way to um, embrace a community. And I'm truly honored to be a part of that community and uh, with all these amazing people. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll end it there, gentlemen. But before we go, I've kept you for long enough. Um, tell us where we can find everything you're up to. And, um, yeah, Michael, let's start with you, man. Where can we find more about your work and everything you're up to? Well, let me get the plug in for our, our conference, Midwest Conference on the Unknown. Uh, you can go to www.cape-events.com uh, or, you know, do your search engine thing. Uh, you can go to my Facebook. I think we got some links. All of us have some links up there. Uh, yep. And uh, check it out. And if you can make it, great. If not, keep us in mind for future years and, uh, you know, give us your ideas on the sort of thing you want to see and the conversations you want to see have happen. Uh, uh, I'm accessible on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Michael Huntington. You can, you can find me there. I do Instagram stuff as well. Uh, and that's it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me and thanks for uh, participating. Uh, it, it, it's an honor to uh, be able to uh, see you guys on stage and, and give your thoughts. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that, you know. So thanks. Thanks for uh, getting involved and, and let's have some fun. Absolutely, brother. I, I don't know if that's cutting out for the rest of everyone out there, too. Uh, my internet's been a little wonky. But no, Michael, thank you. Thank you for everything you do, my man. You keep us you keep us young, and you keep us old on Twitter, and you challenge us. And we need more of that in the UFO Twitter space. So thank you, my man. Um, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to get Micah's contact info here. And uh, we will see you in Missouri very soon, my friend. All right. Take care, guys. Take care, Michael. We'll see you. See you soon. Yes, indeed. And as far as me, you know, it's 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 not hard to find me online. MicahHanks.com. I've got it right there, you know. And at MicahHanks on Twitter. 
it helps when you make everything your name, right? So it really does. It really does, yeah. man. Hey, I, I, and, and the reason I wanted to end here with you, Micah, is because, um, you know, you have been a busy man. You've been all over the country as of late doing conferences and everything, but that doesn't stop you from running the debrief over there. So, um, tell us where we can find everything you got going on over there and maybe a little about what's to come with the debrief. Well, we've always got a lot uh, that we're working on. And, you know, the debrief, of course, has been a uh, quite a uh, change from my own workflow and lifestyle for the last couple of years. It's been all hands on deck, uh, even more so beginning early this year when I took over full time as editor in chief. Um, that in addition to producing our weekly newsletter, the intelligence brief, uh, of course, I'm usually writing at least short articles, often features throughout the week as well. We've been covering everything from all the uh, ongoing developments in, in Washington uh, with regard to UAP to uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, a lot of defense issues, which mostly kind of falls into the purview of what my colleague Tim McMillan reports on. Chris Plain's been doing fantastic space and science, maverick science reporting. You know, I focus a lot on space these days, too. And over at the debrief, you can expect to see a lot of all those topics as we're looking at things that really fundamentally all have one thing in common. They are interesting. Uh, they uh, often indicate scientific developments that are changing our lives. And they're things that really we should all be keeping tabs on as we move ever steadily into the future. So you can follow all of that over there at thedebrief.org. And, of course, you can also uh, follow our collective work and efforts there at Debrief Media on Twitter. Uh, that's the handle on Twitter to follow the debrief. We've got a lot of followers and uh, try to keep all of our information going out there and keep the dialogue going. But uh, we're pretty much available in all places as well, social media-wise, Instagram, Facebook, and uh, what have you. But all of that can be found there at the debrief.org with regular daily reporting, at least on weekdays, on all of these fascinating subjects happening in our world. Absolutely, my man. And again, keeping us on our toes. You're always at the forefront of what's going on in the world of tech, defense, science, and of course, UAP, something you and I will be talking about in just a few short weeks here. So, Micah, I can't wait, man, to tip back a beer with you again. And um, this will be my first time seeing you in a while, buddy. So get ready. It's going to be an interesting couple of days in Missouri. Well, it certainly will. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to lots of catching up you and I are long overdue for and, a, you know, a beer. And, uh, you know, I'm going to give you a hug, too, buddy, because it's been far too long. And I think we're overdue for that and some real good old fashioned UFO talk like we always do. Absolutely, my man. And everyone join us in Missouri, August 5th through the 7th. Micah, I'm going to say good night, my man. Talk a little shop with the viewers here and I'll see you and Michael very soon. Looking forward to it, my friend. All right. Talk to you soon, buddy. Take care. And then there was one, guys, I have to truly thank Michael and and Micah for hanging out with us tonight and talking all the latest UAP news and about the conference coming up. So again, we will have links in the show notes for the event and everything that Micah and Michael are up to. Um, But yeah, check it out. Cape slash events.com is where you can get tickets. Uh, And again, we will have those discount codes for you as well below. Make this a huge inaugural event. 
please, please, we would love to have you guys out there. I truly believe this is going to be something big in the future. So, yes, join us there in Missouri, August 5th through the 7th. Other than that, I did a review last night over at the Unidentified Celebrity Review with Luis Jimenez, Rather Be Squidding, and Tupacabra. And it was a lot of fun. We talked about Jordan Peele's new movie, Nope, which is getting a lot of very uh, polarizing reviews, whether you loved it or hated it. What did we think? Go check it out over on the UCR YouTube page, or the audio is available right now on our Patreon campaign, where you can help support Somewhere in the Skies. So go to patreon.com slash Somewhere Skies to hear our review of Nope, Jordan Peele's latest UFO-themed film. Uh, other than that, the podcast is available wherever you get your shows on all available podcast platforms um and this will be the episode for this week so i gotta get editing right now for that so i'm gonna say good night to all of you thank you so much for joining us tonight for this very special live stream with michael huntington and micah hanks it was truly an honor thank you to our super chat and super sticker uh folks here we got matthew riot and we also have scoston Thank you so much, guys, for your support of the show. And I should have read this when Micah and Michael were still here. Matthew Riot says, where can I find the Huntington Hanks OnlyFans? I'll let you talk to them about that, my man. That is a conversation for another day. Thanks. Thanks, Matthew Riot. Always, always fun having you here, my man. So with that, guys, I'm going to say good night. Thank you, as always, for joining us here at Somewhere in the Skies. And as always, keep your feet on the ground but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. We will see you in Missouri August 5th, guys. is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.